Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hi, everybody. Yesterday, I posted a conversation I had about the origins of social media with Jeff Jarvis, a social media evangelist and one of the pioneering bloggers. Today's conversation is with Julia Angwin about the same period, the beginnings of the social media age. But Julia, who at that time worked for the Wall Street Journal, has very different memories of the birth of our blogging age and what it signified for both the freedom of media and the future of truth. Enjoy. Julia Angwin, uh, do you remember the first time you heard the term social media? I don't know. I think social media, the first time I heard it was probably in reference to Facebook or MySpace back in the early, early days. Um, although I feel like maybe they were called social networks and we didn't come up with the name social media until later. So when you heard the word social networks, what went off in your own neural network? What occurred to you? So I remember back when I first heard the word social network, I really thought about my actual physical social network of like who my friends actually were in real life. And um, there was this whole discussion about um, how many friends you could really maintain. There was a number like 150 that people said was like the max number of people that you could keep really good connections with. The Dunbar number. The right. Dunbar number, right. And so I remember thinking like, okay, well, my personal social network is never going to be more than 150 people. And then I guess maybe I'll communicate with them sometimes on one of these online platforms. But even that seemed sort of preposterous to me at that time. Was there a political event that, or a, a cultural social event that for you represented the beginning of social media? For example, do you remember where you were on 9-11? Yeah, I remember where I was on 9-11. I was walking to the subway, um, and I was one of the few people that I knew that had a BlackBerry, so I had some connection. It didn't have any social networking on it, but um, I was able to email my boss and say, oh, I think I'm something seems to be happening at work. Um, the way I found out what had happened was I was walking by a pizza restaurant and they had a TV on, and in the window of the restaurant, I saw the picture of the World Trade Center on fire. And I remember stopping and looking and thinking, oh, that seems bad. And then going and asking people on the street if they'd heard anything and basically trying to network my way <laughs> through the information to figure out whether I should go to work because my office was across the street from the World Trade Center. So I decided not to attempt to go in. Who were you working for at the time? I was working at that time for the Wall Street Journal. I was a tech reporter, and that's why I had a BlackBerry device. And uh, there were only a few of us in the office had them at that time. It was still pretty new. When you began to understand the immensity of 9 11, uh, did you? I mean, you obviously worked for the Wall Street Journal, so you had access to official, reliable sources. But did did you turn to social media in any way, even though there was no real term for social media back then? 
Yeah, you know, that's a really good question about whether I found any information about 9-11 online. I do not believe that I found really any contemporaneous accounts. You know, the way I would now look for online for like, okay, what's happening? People would be tweeting a live thing like that. Um, I remember that the Wall Street Journal actually, because our office was destroyed and we were... Um, all displaced and it was very weird we couldn't really communicate with each other um we actually built our own little social network inside on the online like on our little you know intranet our corporate intranet so that people could share stories with each other about what had happened and it was like the first time i had some awareness of like what my colleagues had gone through and it was a sort of a precursor or foreshadowing of what social media would bring later, which was sort of this constant ambient awareness of what other people are going through. How did that make you feel to suddenly be on a network when before you hadn't been on one in association with such a traumatic national, international event? It was very, very weird to read about my colleagues' experiences at 9-11. Some people were in the building, some people had to flee. I, you know, luckily was had not even gotten into the office, but um, people had some really dramatic um, experiences. Some people had to be evacuated by boat because the, the Wall Street Journal office was on closer to the river than World Trade Center, so they basically couldn't get back around the the site of the devastation. And so to learn about all that through the sort of online postings that were really disembodied was really a weird way to experience it. And I remember at the time feeling so sad that I couldn't just share those experiences with my colleagues in person, that there was no way for us to sort of all gather and discuss these things together. And what's weird now, looking back on that, is that has become my normal way of experiencing things. It's totally disembodied, and often not even somebody I know. You were and remain a, a tech journalist uh, at the Wall Street, and you were back then. You were the Wall Street Journal, and now you're in doing lots of other different things. Uh, do you have any memories of the blogging community back in 9/11? There was lots of talk, lots of articles about how blogging changed everything around 9-11. What are your memories of blogging and bloggers, particularly as a mainstream media journalist on a, on a large newspaper, the Wall Street Journal? I remember that um, blogging was really big and, you know, I was the reporter in charge of covering AOL and so I was very interested in sort of how people were using their AOL um, pages and instant messaging to keep up with each other and talk about what was happening. Um, and I remember at that time there was a whole, like this whole idea of homesteading, that you had like a virtual homestead online and that was sort of where you would blog. Um, and I remember thinking that it, I remember thinking, oh, I will never do this. This is something that like, I'm just watching other people do. And it's kind of hilarious because now of course I have like multiple online homesteads, right? I have Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and all these new social networks. I've just joined Mastodon and Blue Sky. So, um, I was obviously completely wrong about whether, um, 
how widespread this would become. You said you were the Wall Street Journal reporter who focused on AOL. Was there an element of social media about AOL? The thing about AOL that was the most social was its instant messaging service. And that was really, um, it felt really cutting edge at that time because not only could you chat with people virtually, but you could do, um, the thing that I always really liked about about social media was this idea of ambient awareness, that you didn't have to have a commun like an actual conversation with someone, but you could have an awareness of where they were at. And I loved the away messages or the little messages people would leave on their instant messenger that just said like, I'm at the dentist or I'm, I'm deep in a cave writing. And so basically it was a little message and you didn't even have to communicate with them to see it. You just saw it sort of on your list of contacts. And it really always made me feel like I knew what people were up to. Gave me this feeling that I was like friends with people or that I had like an intimacy with them even though we hadn't talked. And uh, that was like an early precursor in my mind to the the way that we interact now on social media. That was ICQ, which uh, was I think sold to AOL by my friend Yossi Vardy. Right, that's his, right. His son. Um, did you know any bloggers back then? I mean, what did you think of bloggers as, a, again, a, a big-time reporter? Um, I don't... I'm sure I did know some bloggers, but I don't remember specifically a lot about, like, interacting with the blogging community. I know that a lot of my colleagues were writing more about that, but I was a very corporate reporter, and there wasn't any money in it. And so my job at the Wall Street Journal was to focus on the companies where the money was. And so AOL was where I was focusing. And I was mostly writing about the threats to their model from, you know, they were a behemoth, but they were already, it was becoming clear in 2001 that they were going to lose to broadband. Did you know about Ev Williams and Blogger and, and that revolution that was about to explode? Yeah, I was definitely following the blogger revolution from afar, but it was happening in um, California, and it was, um, honestly, from the Wall Street Journal perspective, it didn't have a lot of money in it at the beginning until um, Google bought them. It really was like a hobbyist business, and so I wasn't particularly focused on it. Is that a kind word, Julia, hobbyist for weirdo? Well, you know, the thing is, all of tech was hobbyist at that point, right? I mean, it all was weird. And honestly, like, being a tech reporter in the Wall Street Journal newsroom was also considered, like, not that cool because it was weird and nobody knew what you were talking about and it wasn't clear if there was going to be real money in it. And there was a lot of, like, oh, this is just a bunch of charlatans doing a bunch of weird stuff. So it wasn't cool. Um, and those of us who did it were really kind of nerds and we had these weird BlackBerry devices and... I, people didn't think that it was going to happen. I still remember when I was the reporter covering News Corp and I really wanted to write about MySpace and my editor said, no, it just doesn't matter. Like it's not, it doesn't matter revenue wise to their business. Like you need to keep focusing on satellite TV, which is their key business. I hope that editor will remain nameless. <laughs> that editor will remain nameless. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always easy to dismiss this stuff. What about, Julia, you... You uh, went to University of Chicago, you're from a, a top school, and then you worked at a top newspaper. You were, or are, what 
we like to think of as a reliable authoritative reporter back then in those in the in in the first year or two of the 21st century did anyone do you think do you remember did they think about the idea of the reliability the trustworthiness of reporters like yourself did who think about the reliability um, anyone you oh yeah uh, I, I mean there was no social media so there was no one screaming at you at twitter on twitter or yeah. facebook but uh, if you went to school events or parties would you sometimes bump into people who would say i don't trust mainstream media you guys are all biased you're all conspiratorial they're all you'll work for the murdoch press or this press or that press oh yeah no um at that time before social media I did not experience a, a lot of the skepticism that you now hear about social media. So I would go out and do reporting in, you know, the middle of the country or in small towns. And I always um, was treated as, you know, look, these are authoritative sources. You're coming from New York. Um, and that has changed dramatically, you know, now. There are people who won't talk to you if you're from a mainstream media source. Um, I've definitely had that experience having just recently joined the New York Times that people who I like have said, you know, I hate that paper. I'll never read it, you know, and um, including my father, <laughs> which is awesome. Uh, so um, I, I didn't, but at the time in the, in the early 2000s when I joined the Wall Street Journal, you know, there was just this a uh, feeling of gravitas that like whatever they said was true. And the and the truth is that like, you know, we worked really hard to be accurate, but there wasn't that, you know, internet chorus of people fact checking us all the time too. There were bloggers and some of them were quite well known. Andrew Sullivan, the uh, uh, the the controversial British journalist, uh, Glenn Reynolds, Mr. Instapundit. Did you know any of them? Um, I don't remember knowing any of those bloggers personally. I remember my friend um, from college, I remember John Scalzi, the science fiction author. And I remember he was one of the first bloggers that I knew because he and I worked on the college newspaper together. And then he started a blog, which he's been running ever since. And he's a very successful fiction author, but has also always been like a great blogger. And I remember he was sort of my first entry point into blogging and I remember thinking very you know idiotically but I just remember thinking like this is just unpaid work you're doing like why are you doing it you know it didn't occur to me that it was like helping his fiction career and marketing for him but it isn't that idiotic is it uh, it might be good for him but there were many people who did it and it was a complete waste of time or maybe just a labor of love yeah, no, I'm not saying it's idiotic to do it. I just personally was so committed to the idea of becoming a paid writer that, and I saw the fact that I was getting paid to do it as a real validation of the work. And so I, I had worked so hard to get to that point that I remember thinking that I wouldn't want to go back to writing for free that way. Julia, you've written the best book, the most authoritative book on MySpace, the first real social media network. Uh, when did you begin to understand that this wasn't just a fad, a, a passing thing? Yeah, when I first heard about MySpace was actually when News Corp agreed to buy it. I really hadn't been aware of its existence. When was that? 
um, in, I'm gonna have to check, but I feel like it's 2004. Mm. Um, and... When they paid 580 million, I think it was. Yes. Um, Which back no, then was all... It wasn't 2004, it was 2008. Okay, I'm gonna have to tell you later, sorry. The book is right here, we can check yeah. it, but, um, um, Basically, when I heard of MySpace and the, the fact that News Corp was buying it, I thought, what is this thing? Like, I thought I was like a cool tech reporter. What? I don't know what this is. So I checked it out. And at first I thought, this is weird. It kind of, it reminded me of gaming. So I had been, I had covered a lot of, of game companies and video gaming. And I thought, okay, this is going to be like a niche, sort of like gaming where, you know, a bunch of young people will do it, but it's not going to be like a big thing. But as I, but then when I left the Wall Street Journal on book leave to write a book about MySpace and I really dove into it, I started to realize that this was bigger than I had thought it was. So that when I started to meet the kind of people who were on MySpace, the way they had built their businesses around it, how MySpace had actually figured out how to monetize people's data and sell advertisers on this new idea that you could target people based on information about them that they'd provided to MySpace. So there was this new emerging idea that you could really, really know so much about someone and then really sell an ad directly to their interests. And so as I got deeper into that, I started to realize that this was actually going to change everything. And that's when I became aware of like how much was coming down the pike towards the future and that's actually when I got interested in privacy because the part that got me interested was like you know what this is a weird business model where basically our personal information is being sliced and diced and sold in a way that I've never seen before. It was or remains a dramatic transformation not just of technology and media but of the self Julia isn't it? Yeah, I think that is the thing that changed so much was this idea that you had to make what was implicit explicit. So for instance, in, sorry. <clears throat> so what I feel like changed is that you had to make what was implicit explicit. So the idea was that for instance, I was a kind of person who liked yoga and hiking and cooking. Right. But that was not something that I had to present to the world in, in a normal way. Like none of my colleagues really maybe knew that about me. But when you set up a social network, you would like list those things on your profile in order to find other people like that. And so suddenly I remember being very surprised at how much I was curating my identity online and sort of creating a person that was somewhat like me but not exactly like me and that was the sort of online identity that I had and then as more and more social networks came up I realized that I had really different identities on them so my LinkedIn personality actually looked pretty different from my Facebook or my MySpace one which was you know this page that was decorated and I had like little you know virtual stickers and flashing lights on it because that was sort of the MySpace vibe and so I started to feel like I had fractured myself into multiple multiple personalities which I think we all have within us but we don't but social media allows us this weird way to express them all in unique ways. This splintering Julia of Julia Angwin were there particular historical moments where you think, maybe not so much for you personally, but more broadly for all of us, were there events where this began to become clear? Was it perhaps the Great Recession, uh, the election of Obama, 
the Arab Spring, the Occupy movement were there. It seemed to be taking place in the period between about 19, uh, b between 2005, 2012. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that this idea that we had to curate and manage um, multiple identities online definitely evolved as the internet evolved. And really in that post-dot-com boom, um, the second wave of the internet after 2005 when this new group of companies, the social media companies, all started to come about. And then all of a sudden they were built around this idea a lot of them were built around this idea of your identity. Whereas that first wave of companies had been all about basically just come online, buy a book on Amazon.com or buy some something for your pet at pets.com. But the next wave was all about expressing yourself. And so it became this world of expression online. And that was really interesting to me. I became concerned about privacy because I felt like I didn't want to express really everything about myself online. And one thing that I noticed with my kids who were growing up at that time and was that they were actually smarter than adults in um, curating their identities. So my daughter, I remember, always had multiple um, Instagram accounts, right? She would have her Finsta, which was the fake Instagram account, and she had a several of them in order to have different circles of friends that she showed different things to. And I remember learning from them that, oh, you know what, there are ways to manage your identity in this world, but you have to put a little bit of time and effort into it. Julia, you know this better than I do, there was a, a chorus of people arguing in the late 20 zeros that, that this was going to change the world for the better, that social media was going to democratize everything, particularly politics, and of course... This was realized in the Arab Spring. Uh, do you remember that feeling of euphoria, that general zeitgeist that all this technology was going to make the world a better place? I definitely was always kind of on board with this idea of the internet being a democratizing force. Having grown up in Silicon Valley, having been a tech native, having been a tech reporter, I was very, very optimistic about it. I remember thinking, okay, all these airlines have to compete harder for my price. You know, I'm going to get cheaper Air Force, which did, I think, turn out to be true. I was super excited about being able to buy books for cheaper. Um, but by the time Arab Spring came around, I had already started thinking about the downsides, the privacy risks. And I remember being really surprised that everyone was so optimistic about how Arab Spring was going to go. And of course it was super exciting to see all these people being mobilized online. But I was worried that, you know, it's a matter of time before the authoritarians use this to crush dissent. And in fact, that is what they did. And I also think it's worth remembering there was a very moment that people have forgotten about the Arab Spring, which was that in the beginning, the very first Egyptian protest was organized by a guy who was in Egypt who had been a former Google reporter, sorry, a former Google engineer. And he made a Facebook page for the protest, but he used a fake identity, which violated Facebook's rules. They wanted everyone and still want everyone to use real identities online. And so people have forgotten, but actually his page for organizing that original protest was taken down by Facebook because it violated their rules. And it was only restored because he personally 
as a former Google employee, had connections at Facebook that he lobbied and they let it come back up. And I remember thinking at that time, this is a very bad sign that you need to basically have a personal connection to somebody at Facebook in order to organize a protest. That isn't really scalable. So this isn't going to be a platform for the people the way that people are thinking it is. For your uh, MySpace book, did you do a lot of interviewing of the, the founders of the company? Uh, for the MySpace book, the founders of the company uh, did not agree to participate. Uh, so I did not um, have any sort of, I don't think I even spoke to them once the whole who, time. Who did you build the book around then? Who were most of your interviews with? Well, so the thing about um, the MySpace story that was so weird, right, was that MySpace was a subsidiary of this larger company called Intermix. And Intermix had a whole bunch of weird little properties that it had um, different online pop-up ads and selling vitamins online and sort of lots of weird sketchy stuff. And Intermix had sold itself to News Corp. And so they had sold basically MySpace, which was their most valuable property, to News Corp, but over the objections of the MySpace founders. And so I was talking more to the Intermex people who had sold the company without the knowledge of the MySpace founders. And so I was writing about that tension, right? It was a really interesting boardroom story about how you could found a company but actually have it sold out from underneath you secretly. And the MySpace founders had been negotiating to try to sell themselves to Viacom but they um, weren't able to pull it off because they didn't have the legal structure in place to allow them to have that power. So I had a lot of sources um, who shared information with me, but the MySpace founders did not participate. In that period between 2005 and 2011 and 12, there was a wave after wave of new social media companies. Uh, it was a, a, a scramble for the social media world. Do you remember that? Every week it seemed there was a new startup. Some succeeded, some didn't. Some sold out for enormous amounts of money like MySpace and Bebo and then disappeared afterwards. Was this rather like the dot-com insanity of the late 90s? Yeah, the, the boom in social networks, right? There were six apart. There was Bebo, there was Friendster, there was MySpace, there was Facebook. There were so many of them. It was like a mini boom. I think it wasn't quite as well-financed a boom as the dot-com boom. Um, this, these were scrappier companies. They were started a little bit more on a shoestring. But um, there was a whole bubble because people realized that essentially this was a way to give people an online presence. Nobody wanted to build their own web page, but if you went on a social network, you could just basically have a page built for you and then you had you existed online. You had a way to express your identity online. And so they were all competing for that space, which I feel like happens all the time in Silicon Valley, right? You don't just have one crypto company, you have three dozen or however many dozens. And same thing with social networks. And then it shakes out and one of them wins. And, you know, Facebook obviously won that one. Are we coming to the end of the social media period? If it began a little after 9-11 with blogging and then went to MySpace and Facebook and Bebo and all the others, are we coming to the end of the social media period, particularly given the revolutionary potential now of AI and uh, uh, chat GPT? I think that we as humans are always going to use the internet 
somehow to express ourselves socially and to interact. I think the idea of creating networks online and using that to scale your interaction with people is going to remain. It does seem like it's going to change shape. Um, you know, this idea of the new federated universe through Mastodon where you don't have to agree to just be at one central place like Twitter. You choose your own server and then that server has different rules and norms and everyone has a little bit more control over the kind of rules that are in place. I think I can imagine the world we're in of social media evolving towards that or towards maybe some other thing that we haven't thought of. Um, but I don't think we're going to stop doing it. It seems like it's the most popular thing online is to share information with your friends.